Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Tuesday, November 30th, 2010, and our guest is Phil Schlechty. How'd I do? Yeah, <laughs> with, a, with a name like Hargadon, I don't deserve any uh, latitude in mispronouncing a name. Phil is the author of Leading for Learning, as well as uh, several other books. Uh, I'm really delighted to have him here tonight. The interview series is uh, sponsored by my employer, Illuminate. The project I work on is Learn Central, the social network for educators that has Illuminate baked in. It is all free. I encourage you to go and take advantage of that. Last month and this month, Microsoft have helped to provide a book budget for me. And so we thank Redo and Microsoft for their sponsorship these last two months. Coming up uh, next week, Karen Egan uh, on uh, several of his books, including one called The Future of Education, which is uh, perfectly suited to this forum. Uh, Julie Young from Florida Virtual School on December 9th. Deborah Meyer on the 14th. Alfie Cohn on the 16th. The Alfie Cohn interview is earlier than usual. So I know many of you want to tune in for that. Do know that it is at 12 Pacific, 3 Eastern. Uh, in January, Ira David Sokol, Will Richardson, Barnett Berry, Karen Hume in February, David Perkins in February as well. Um, in March 1st, Sandy Hirsch on libraries and digital literacy. And today, uh, Karen Cater confirmed she's going to come on and talk about the uh, National Ed Tech Plan. Just haven't set a date for that yet. If you've missed the Future of Education show, they are all recorded. They're in podcast form as well as full Illuminate recordings. You can go to futureofeducation.com to see them there. I uh, had a great interview last week with Matt Levinson on his book, From Fear to Facebook. Uh, and before that, Stephen Farr from Teach for America, Vicki Abelli's about her movie, Race to Nowhere, and lots, lots more. And Diane Ravitch was on as well, so if you missed that, well worth listening to. If this is your first time in Illuminate, it is a participative environment. Uh, I do get to ask the questions at the beginning. You get to ask the questions at the end. Uh, if you would like to, you can place notes in the chat. Let us know what you're thinking about. Um, connect with each other. Do be aware that um, that for Phil and I, we see those. And so if they're off topic, they can be a little distracting. So I encourage you to keep them on topic. I do recommend that you go up to View Layouts and switch to the Wide Layout. It makes it a little bit easier to see that chat. At the bottom of the participant window, you'll see a smiley face, a clapping hand, a confused look, a thumbs down. The larger icon, which is the hand with the green up arrow, lets you raise your hand if you would like to ask a question. And when we get to Q&A, we'll encourage you to use that if you'd like to take the microphone. If you have not taken the microphone before in Illuminate and you would like to ask a question with the mic, uh, at this time you should go up to Tools, Audio, and run the Audio Setup Wizard to make sure your microphone is working. So we're now going to give you a chance to let us know where you're listening from. It's also helpful if you're able to to put a line in the chat about uh, where you're located, maybe the time and the temperature. Layouts are locked. Uh, that may be your own. Let's see, Kelly says layouts are locked. That shouldn't change you from being able to switch to the wide layout. If you unlock the layouts, it lets you move the elements around on your page. But if you just go to layouts, wide layout, you should be OK. So uh, look to the left of the map for the wand with the red star. Click on that. Click on the map. Let us know where you're listening from. Someone from China, several North America, Canada. It looks like oh my Southeast Asia geography is going to trip me up here. Please put it in the <laughs> in the chat. South Korea, Illinois, Alberta, Georgia. Texas, North Carolina, 
Spring City, Pennsylvania, Syracuse, BC, Canada. How fun. Wherever you are listening from, we sure appreciate your being here. Australia, it's um, it's going to be Wednesday, the, the first, I guess, there. Have fun. Well, Phil, you're getting a good crowd here. Again, I really want to thank you for coming on. I'm going to start by telling you that uh, it's really interesting to hold this interview series because it seems that we sort of develop themes as we move along. And your book so perfectly and brilliantly connects with several of the themes that have been taking place uh, in the interview series. That it's really delightful to uh, have been able to spend uh, you know, a fair amount of time kind of getting to know you and your thoughts through the book. This is an interesting field because I've been doing the interview series now for two years. I don't have a background as a teacher. I certainly don't have a background in, in, um, in education theory. But I was surprised that I didn't know much about you. Um, are there, um, uh, is this just such a big, broad field that uh, there are a lot of people who don't know each other? Or should, did I miss the boat here somewhere? Well, I think there's a lot of people who don't know much about me because I tend to work from the bottom up. Uh, I used to, back in the 70s and 80s, I did an awful lot of work with governors and legislators. and I probably was more well-known at that time than I am now because I've been working with schoolhouses and superintendents and principals and essentially trying to help people deal with the policy that comes down as opposed to formulate the policy that comes down. And the people who really uh, get denoted are people who are dealing with the formation of policy and particularly people who live on the East Coast and the West Coast because there's a, there's a much more of a media outlet, outlet there. So, so uh, I think that's part of the explanation for it. Well, I'm interested in how that may play into our discussion about uh, decision making and bureaucracy and, and centralization. I will say that I, I posted to my blog, which then automatically posts to Twitter and to Facebook, and um, someone saw the post that you were going to be on tonight and, and placed a big wow with an exclamation mark. And um, <laughs> I, I figured that's a high compliment to you um, and, and more an indication that I should have known you and didn't. Um, tell me, if you would, kind of briefly, uh, what you've written about in your other books and, and what, in particular, Leading for Learning is bringing you to um, as, a, as a part of that series. Well, I started out, the first book I wrote was in 1976. And basically, it was based on my observations as a uh, person working with the, the old National Science Foundation projects, the inquiry-oriented stuff. And I figured out that, look, what we tried to do is install those materials but they didn't fit the system. And because they didn't fit the system, they were either reje rejected or they were, they were domesticated. And I, so I wrote a book about that. Why was it that this stuff didn't happen? I called it Teaching and Social Behavior. And basically looked how organizations affected the implementation of innovations. And I've been on that, that theme all of my life ever since then. And trying to figure, refine and think about that. Uh, then in 1990, I think it was, I wrote another book uh, I call it a school for the 21st century, in which I try to talk about uh, different conceptions of teaching and teachers. And I talk about students as volunteers and and, stu and teachers as, as leaders and inventors and designers, and begin to build from that. And then I, built, I wrote another book in '97 called Inventing Better Schools, in which I start talking about how we begin to think strategically and how how strategic thinking is different from strategic planning and and so forth and so on. And then in 2000, I wrote another one. 
And then in 2002, I wrote a work, Working on the Workbook, where that wow statement probably came from, because I, I used the word working on the work, and some people shortened it to wow. And so it became the wow book. And then I wrote uh, uh, a later book in which I talked about six systems that really have to be uh, transformed if we're going to reform the school, reshape the schools. Then I wrote Leading, Leading for Learning. And just today, I finished a uh, last last version of a book, a re rewrite of the Working on the Workbook, which is now kind of a new a new book, and that'll be out in March. So that's about what I came from. But what I really have been interested in all my life is how the way schools are organized affects the way teachers and students perform in classrooms, and therefore how uh, what students learn. And basically, uh, I've always been fascinated about how it is in America we've used a bureaucratic model and a factory model to shape the way we think about school and create conditions in which teachers are supposed to teach and be creative when bureaucracies are the most anti-creative organizations you can have. And I never could think through what a, a better organizational form was. But beginning in the 1990s, I began to become aware, particularly influenced by Peter Drucker, I began to think about students as knowledge workers and knowledge work organizations. And then Peter Zingi comes along with his, his fifth discipline, in which he talked about uh, the learning organization, which has a lot of overlap with Drucker's work. And I began to bring those things together. And that's how I came up with this book. Well, I really enjoyed it. Okay. And I think in part because you do bring in uh, Drucker and Zingi. And when I interviewed Diane Ravitch a couple of weeks ago, we talked uh, at some length about um, W. Edwards Deming and the total quality movement and right. this idea that you can't blame the worker for system failures. Uh, although it's yeah. tempting, you know that when a business like Hewlett Packard says, well, our product quality is bad because of the workers, that they've missed something. And yet we seem comfortable saying that yeah. schools are bad because of the teachers. That's right. I, I just wrote, you know, I, I, there's a little article appeared in the, in the uh, uh, Harvard Business Review in 2007, and I kind of filed away. And today I've been messing with this, and it's called about in, uh, the folly of what the author calls accountable accountableism. And basically, he argues uh, that that what we what we do is we have created. Let me read one sentence from it real quickly. He says, "Accountability has gone horribly wrong." become accountableism, the practice of eating sacrificial, sacrificial victims in the attempt to magically ward off evil. And then he talks about what that means. And, he, and one of the things that's very apropos of what you just said, uh, he said, accountableism increases bureaucratization and atomization. It submits everything to a rule and predetermined results and insists that all human behavior can be rationalized. It's not his words, it's mine. People are, after all, predictable. If they provide the right incentives or threaten with the right with tight puni the right punishments, we can get them to behave the way we want them to behave. That's nonsense. Uh, we've known for many years that the power of groups can overwhelm the most powerful individual incentives. Uh, Weinberger says accountableism refuses to acknowledge that people work and think differently. It eliminates the human variation that move institutions forward and provide a check on the monoculture that accounts for the most disastrous decisions. It also makes work, and I would say school, no fun. Uh, and I think what we've done is, we've rather than freeing schools from bureaucracy, Diane Ravitch has always talked about it, even, though, even when she's back in another phase of her life, she's always understood since her studies of the New York City schools that bureaucracy was the death of quality education. 
And it's interesting to me that many people have moved to further bureaucratize the schools and embed them in government, which is the most bureaucratic form of organization you can have in order to solve the problems that bureaucracy is causing. It seems to me we have to have a different solution than that. We've got to, embed, we've got to find ways to embed schools in, in communities and make sure that the communities we embed them in are moral communities. Well, in a lot of ways, um, I felt like I was stretching myself to fully understand your connection between schools and communities, but it was exciting to be thinking about this opportunity or requirement or direct connection between schools and communities and the need for schools to become community leaders. Uh, I'm not expressing that well, but yeah. would you want to uh, talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah. I, you know, uh, the idea of public schools does not mean government schools. It means schools that belong to the public. In fact, Tyak uh, uh, talks about public, locally controlled public schools were at one time thought of as almost a fourth branch of government. Uh, they were, schools were formed to protect the citizens against the possibility of a tyrannical government. And therefore, they were not to be instruments of the government. They were rather to be a check on the government, and the government's job was to encourage local schools to grow. In fact, the, the uh, Northwest Ordinance of 1787 has specific language in it that the function of the government is to encourage local communities to establish schools. It is not to run the schools. In 1958, with the National uh, uh, Defense Education Act, they had specific language prohibiting the federal government from doing many of the things it is now doing. And they very specifically said, this act should not in any way entitle the government to run the schools. Uh, that this is reserved to the states and to the, to the um, uh, communi local communities. And, and particularly, it's to the public. And the public is the same public to which the government ought to be accountable. And so what we've done is made the schools accountable to the government as opposed to, to the public, because the, gov the, gov the government is accountable to the public, because the schools ought to be accountable to the public, and it's the same public, but we, when we make them accountable to the government, we make them serve government ends, which may or may not be what we want them to do. So, and I'm not, go ahead. By, by the way, I want to be very clear, I'm not an anti-government person, and I'm not, I'm not uh, talking the, the uh, states' rights line that you sometimes hear uh, some of the more conservative people talk about. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is that we have to have a system of education that's embedded in the community so that it belongs to the community and belongs to the public as opposed to belongs to some... I don't want the schools to look like the post office department. You know, we got local post offices and there's a postmaster, but there's not a lot of sentiment attached to the post office. And education requires sentiment. It requires commitment. It requires shared values. And you only get that when you build community around it. So it seemed to me that there's a, a, a little bit of a theme in the book, and maybe I've read this into it, or, or you can tell me if it's accurate, that systems are attractive because they often reduce the need for work. So we sometimes allow ourselves to be, uh, we allow ourselves to build systems in order to avoid work, and that we need to be conscious of the fact that when we do that, that we often end up with things that we don't want. Is, is that accurate? Well, I never thought about it that way, so I don't know whether it's accurate or not. And I'll probably have to answer that question next week. <laughs> it's a pretty profound question. I don't know. If I've, I've never quite thought it that way. So, but I, I, I can say this. That we create systems. 
uh, and different systems accomplish different ends. You know, the system of education we created was created at a time when we, you know, Thomas Jefferson was great for public education, but he believed in a meritocratic system of education. He said, if you set up these schools and you have elementary schools for everybody, and then you take this great rake and you drag through it, and you're going to have some what we would call now secondary schools for a few people. And you drag through it again, and you wind up with another bunch of people who are going to be, and not a smaller group each time, who are going to go to the university. And it, that, that was good enough. We didn't need a whole bunch of highly educated people. We needed people educated well enough. They could carry out their own chores. They could write their letters. They could, they could figure out their own books and so forth and so on. And they could carry out their civic duties. Uh, it was only in the 50s that we began to see, hey, we need a lot more people who know a lot more, and we need a lot of people who can do what we used to assume that only the intellectual elite could do. And we've got to figure out some way to educate 50% to 70% of the population at a level at which we used to assume that only 5 to or 10% could be educated. You know, if, if you read Du Bois, he talked about the talented 10th. Uh, he was talking about African Americans, and he assumed 10%. And that's the same thing with the, 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 the if you go back and look at high school reform in the 19, in 1890s. They were, they were anticipating high schools being for 5 to 15% of the people. That was about the size of it. It was only after the turn of the century and the growth of the progressive movement that we began, and I'm not talking about progressive education, I'm talking about the politically progressive movement, that we began to open up the schools and see high school for nearly everybody. And then we wanted not high school to be for nearly everybody. We wanted to provide nearly everybody, the education we used to assume that only the elite could take. And, and so we have to find ways to do that, and we have never have found ways to do that. And that's what we have to do. We have to create, it's going to require a different organization. It's kind of like trying to take the internal combustion engine and get to the moon. I mean, the internal combustion engine is a perfectly fine engine if you're willing to stay landbound. But it's not going to get you where you want to go if you want to go to the moon. Well, the same thing is true in terms of our schools. It was perfectly fine if you want a mechanism that essentially made, provided opportunities to attain. And then if you didn't, you let you drop out. You know, when I started teaching school back in the 1950s, dropouts were not a, we had no dropout problem. Dropouts were a solution. If you get the right kids to drop out of school, the schools worked just fine. And that was, that was the way it was looked at. I mean, the principal I first worked for did a lot of dropout counseling. He counseled kids to drop out. He'd say, son, have you had about all this fun? You can stand. Get out and get a job. Well, nowadays we're seeing those same people not only stay in school, but learn as much as you used to assume that only a few kids could learn. And that takes a different system. And that's why it can't be embedded in these government bureaucracies, because they're not designed to inspire excellence. Uh, and what we have to have are schools that inspires excellence and inspires commitment. And that means you have, it has to be value-based as well as, and community-based, as well as technically proficient. So the theme of, oh, that makes sense. Sense. The theme of bureaucracies really runs throughout the whole book. There's no question of that. Um, do you want to talk about how the standards-based movement kind of flows naturally from that and, and why it's so attractive within that environment? <laughs> Well, I, I think there's two, two ways to look at standards. You can look at standards as sources of direction, which I would prefer to do, or you look at standards as sources of control, which I think the standards-based movement has 
evolved into. You know, initially when people started talking about the standards-based movement, you go back to the to the uh, Nation at Risk report in 1983. They were talking about curriculum standards. They were talking about what children ought to know and ought to be able to do. They were not talking about student performance standards. Uh, they, when they were proposed a student performance standard, but they were saying if we have the right standards, what we've done is let down the standards about what we expect kids to know, and therefore they don't know it. Now what we need to do is first off raise the, the curriculum standards and make sure that we expect all children. If you if you listen to Di, you had Diane Ravitch on a few weeks ago, Diane Ravitch and I would have some disagreements about some things, but the idea that all children need to know enough about the disciplines to distinguish sense from nonsense seems to me to be a pretty good idea. Now that makes me a traditionalist. I'm fine, uh, but that means all children, not just some children. Well, that means you have to have a different education system because we never have figured out how to do that. Well, standards ought to be what do you need to know and be able to do in order to distinguish sense from nonsense in the area of science, in the area of history. Some of the stuff is going on right now in terms of people being misled uh, by some of the commentators on television, both left and right. If they under, had a decent understanding of history, they begin to say, hey, that's nonsense. There's stuff you're talking about that's just not so. In fact, it's true of education. You know, a lot of people, when I, I get up and make speeches, I say something like, in 1950, nearly half of all Americans had not dropped out of high school because they hadn't dropped in in the first place. That's according to the 1950 census data. Well, people would be shocked by that. And they say, my goodness, I didn't know that. Are you sure that's right? And I said, well, go look at the census data. Uh, and it's, it is right. It's not that it, we, the graduation from high school was not the norm in 1940. Uh, and there are more girls graduating than boys in the, in the turn, at the turn of the century because if you were a boy, unless you were going to go to college, unless you were going to, unless you were going to uh, be a doctor, a lawyer, a minister, uh, why, why would you bother going to college? Now, the girls went to, went to high school uh, because it prepared them to do some of the things you could do with a terminal high school diploma. But we didn't, boy, in a terminal high school diploma didn't have the same meaning that it has today. Uh, so, so we have a whole bunch of misunderstandings of the history of public education that leads people to forming conclusions and posing solutions that make no sense at all if you understand what has gone on before. And it seems to me we need to have a quality education for all kids where they can understand what's going on around them and what might be happening inside of themselves. And that requires a very disciplined approach, but it doesn't mean it has to, you know, too many, a lot of people talk about rigor, but too many people confuse rigor with rigor mortis. Uh, we have to have an exciting form of education where, where kids get engaged in the work, and that work results in their learning the stuff they need to learn. So, what's fun? I, know, I know I'm talking about <laughs> no, I'm that, glad so. you are. So, what's fun about having you on the show is that hopefully we're introducing you to new people. And one of the things that I learned about you is that you have a really clever way of turning a phrase. So, I'm going to read some from an interview because you talked about turning uh, rigor into rigor mortis. You've also said um, it's important to understand that students are volunteers, whether we want them to be or not. Their attendance can be commanded, but their attention must be earned. Their compliance can be insisted on, but their commitment is under their own control. Uh, here's another one. When we manage by programs, we are more concerned about doing things right than doing the right thing. And one final one I loved. Um, if you do not have the time to read, you will not have the time. You will not have time to lead. Uh, 
I'm assuming you enjoy creating those. <laughs> I just do it. I don't, I don't sit around and think them up. It, they just happen. A lot of times they happen right in the middle of the speech. You know, I'll be saying something and all of a sudden, you know, and I remember, da 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 da, da you know, I, had a, I was influenced a lot by uh, good speakers. Uh, you know, I, I was raised in a fundamentalist Methodist church, and my grandfather was a fundamentalist Methodist minister. And uh, so I and we brought in all these guys to speak, and you listen to the uses of metaphors and ideas, and and I suspected much of my education was based in the community, uh, as well as in the school, and there was a linkage between those things, and I th I think that's one of the things you know, uh, an insight has come to me since I wrote that book that I think is true, and I think I picked this up from uh, I don't remember where I got it, but it's not my idea, but I'm, I've stolen it and used it now. Uh, so whoever whoever idea it is, I say thank you. Uh, I probably I can dig it out someplace, but I'm not where I can get it at my files. But basically, the idea that the community and the family and the school, all three, have vital education functions. The change in society has decreased the capacity of the community to educate and decreased the capacity of the of the family to educate. And as a consequence, what we've done is turn to the schools to do more of what the family and the community used to do. Maybe that's a mistake. Maybe what we ought to be doing is figuring out how to use the schools to enhance the capacity of the family to educate and enhance the capacity of the community to educate rather than trying to do what the family and the community used to do because there's a lot of things a family can do that no school can do. And there's things a community can do that no school can do because the affect that you have to have and, and, and learning... For example, I, I facetiously say sometimes that I learn not to cram by milking cows. Uh, I learned that you don't get the same amount of milk if you milk real hard once a month. That uh, you have to do some. There are some things that take discipline, and they take. They, and you have to do them whether you want to or not if you're going to get the results you want. Well, my school didn't teach me that. My life taught me that, and I brought those habits to school and worked with them. The school did not teach me work habits. My community taught me work habits. Now the, the community does not teach work habits. The family cannot teach work habits. And as a consequence, the only place left to teach work habits are the schools. And the schools can't bring to bear the kind of social pressures that the family and the community can bring to help kids see themselves as, as people who are going to be productive because they engage in meaningful work. That's an example. So. If I don't know if I'm dealing with what you're asking. Oh, or not. absolutely. So if we go back to standards for a minute, and and we think about uh, the, the local role, um, Tony Wagner from Harvard came on the show and he talked about how he worked with local educational organizations to create um, um, expectations and standards for their school, and how going through this process was enormously healthy for the community. And in in fact, they almost always came up with the exact same standards. But it was much better than having them handed down from someone else. What, what's your yep. sense of how this process takes place? What, what, what level should the local community be involved in standards, and, and what are appropriate standards to have at a higher level? Well, I think, I think general, first off, I think that the state has an obligation to state five, six, seven, eight big things that they think every graduate ought to know about their history. They ought to know about science. There ought to be big general standards. And say, if you, when a school board says this person has graduated, there is evidence that they 
have addressed these things. Now, the state then has to monitor that, not by testing kids. My argument in the book, as you know, is that we need to set up kind of visitation groups that come into a school from time to time, a school district, and say, give us a list of the names of the kids that are going to graduate. And then we're going to assess them for maybe a week or two weeks. And we're going to find out, can they really read the stuff that the standards say they ought to be able to read? Are they really aware of the stuff, not specific stuff? Let me give you an example. Shakespeare. Should a child know everything that Shakespeare ever wrote? I suspect not. But they ought to be able to read Shakespeare and talk intelligently about what they've read. So if I were on an assessment team, I might go in and say to a high school senior, uh, if we've got a standard about English, uh, I'm going to give you this uh, Romeo and Juliet, and between now and next Monday, I'd like you to have taken a look at it so we can talk about it. And I want to see if that student can at least have some sense of what they've read. Uh, now, they may have, in fact, read it in school, but I'm not going to prescribe the curriculum, but the state's going to prescribe the standards. The trouble is that what we do is we get the standards stated, and then somebody decides, well, we've got to get that more refined. We come down to the next step and the next step, and pretty soon we've got standards dictated all the way down to, the, to kindergarten. Well, if you work in schools, you know that some kids who start to kindergarten are one place and others are another place. In fact, there's good research to support what I'm about to say, and that is one of the biggest differences in terms of the achievement gap is the age at which kids start to school. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We know, and there's data to support what I'm about to say, that the kids who are youngest in the class are more likely to do poorly than those who are oldest in the class. Children who are older when they start to school than their peers tend to do better because their, mat their maturation is better and they've, they've matured more. That's one of the reasons we redshirted my grandson. Kept him out of school a little bit longer because we could afford to send him to, to, to a, uh, a uh, private uh, preschool for another year. A poor parent tries to get their kids in school as young as they can because they need a babysitter. So what you do is wind up exacerbating the problem by batch processing kids when they start to school. That carries over all the way through school. And we don't even think about that. As, that's a system effect. That's something we could do something about. If we were prepared to do what the Boy Scouts do, you know, if you're joining the Boy Scouts, you become a boy, you're eligible to be a Boy Scout the day you turn 12. And you don't have to wait for the next year's class to be admitted. You come into the Boy Scouts when you're ready. Well, that would mean we'd have to change the way schools are organized because they'd have to be prepared to re receive kids on a monthly basis. There are nations in this, country, in this world where they do that. I think New Zealand does that. I think New Zealand has nine starting dates. Something like, I think that's not, I may be wrong about that, but I think that's true. I know there are countries that do it. But if we begin to think that way, then we start talking about different kids meeting different standards at different times. In fact, in the book, I talk about golf and the concept of par, par and golf. You know, people like me, can, I can't anymore, but I used to be able to play golf, uh, and we played golf with very good golfers, and people as bad as I am, and we played against the same standard called par. But I didn't feel, by, by having handicaps, a whole variety of things, I didn't feel out of it all the time. And every once in a while, on a given hole, I might shoot as well as the club pro. And, boy, that made me feel good. But I didn't, they didn't lower the standards for me. They didn't say, well, par for you is seven, and par for um, Tiger Woods is four. Since Tiger Woods and Phil Schlecker play the same part, now sometimes what we did was play from different tees. And so there, there were some adjustments, but basically the standards were the same standards. Standards become sources of direction 
as opposed to sources of control. And bureaucracies use the standards to control people, where learning organizations set them up as sources of direction. But in, in a learning organization, standards function more like uh, satellites in a, in a, in a, a directional system. You know, when, I, when I get in my car and I turn on the, the global positioning system, uh, there's a set of things out there that are stable and they're kind of function like standards that triangulate and tell me whether I'm going in the right direction. Uh, but they're not standards in the sense of controlling, they're standards in the sense of directing. And what we need to do is understand how do we use standards to give us direction rather than standards as, as sources of control. So I don't know if I'm making sense, but that's, that's where I, I can down on this stuff. Well, so the kind of testing you've just described really does also, again, remind me of um, sort of total quality management, which is you're randomly right. testing in order to, to test the, how well the system is working, not to hold the individual accountable. And so there's different kind of testing oh, yeah. that you do in order to improve a system versus to hold someone accountable. Um, I'm really interested in... Well, let, me, let me say something about, you know, back in, when I, I wrote, there are a couple of books I wrote there in the middle where I spent a lot of time talking about Deming and, and, and total quality management, because I was very, and still am very impressed with it. But I think what we have to talk about is continuous innovation as opposed to continuous improvement. That what we have to, what we have to do is create systems that are continuously innovative because that's the problem we're going to have to have in the American industry. It's not going to get there by produce, making the product a little bit better. We have to become a leader in innovation. And we have to understand when we invent a new product, once that product has been invented and we produce it for about six months, somebody in some other country is going to be able to put, produce it faster and cheaper, uh, and, 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 and they're going to have a labor force that's going to settle for less money. So we have, to, we have to create a condition in which we're constantly innovating. Well, the same thing is true in school. Teachers have to be continuously innovating, creating new work to engage kids because these kids are having new experiences. When I, when I watch youngsters in school, uh, you know, it used to be as a, well, I, even when I started teaching, uh, we controlled the kids by controlling the information. I knew more about what was going on in the world than the kids did. Well, today, with the Internet and with all the, the sources of information, the digital world has changed that equation. And many times, kids know stuff before their teachers do. Well, that changes the whole power relationship between adults and children. And we had to figure out how do we invite kids to learn the right stuff. I'll give you just one quick example of that. My grandson is eight years old, and his mother, as you know, is a techie. And she works for us, and she does all this stuff. So she's got computers all over her house. And she's, my little grandson has learned how to get on Google and look up stuff. And one night they were watching a television show uh, talking about, and, and which the show, there's something about Belgium on it. And he said, where's Belgium, Mom? And, and he, he said, well, why don't you go in and said, get on Google and look it up and see it and come and tell me. So he went in and got on Google and he came back and she said, what did you learn about Belgium? She said, well, I don't know much. He said, one of the things it said is they're real busy during World War II. He said, what do you mean they're real busy during World War II? He said, well, so it said in there that they were occupied by the Germans. Well, his conception, I can just hear her, I'm going to have to find something to occupy you, son. And so the word occupy meant to keep you busy. Well, now, she was a good teacher, and so she used that as an opportunity to educate him. Well, kids are out there getting a whole bunch of teaching done to them and getting information that can turn out to be misinformation if they don't have access to a teacher to help them process what they think they've learned. 
And the, so the world of the teacher has changed. The teacher is no more, longer the source of the information. They have to be guides to instruction as opposed to the instructor because the instruction is being more and more done electronically. And we have to create work that leads the kids to want to learn what we want them to learn and then guide them to the source of instruction the most clearly fits their learning styles and their learning needs. And that means that's where technology comes into this whole thing. So uh, there, <laughs> there's so much more in the book that I know we're not going to have a chance to cover. Um, but I want to, uh, I want to sort of move toward the, uh, the last part of the book and, and sort of the vision for what things that we can do. I went to see a movie this weekend called Inside Job. It's a discussion of the financial crisis and the degree to which Wall Street uh, you know, has largely been involved in policy making in Washington and how sort of devastating that has been. And I left the movie theater thoroughly discouraged. Felt like there's nothing I can do. You know, there's very little I can do to actually make a change here. So if if we see sort of uh, parallel themes in education, sort of decision making taking place at the federal level, uh, and maybe not in complete agreement with the kinds of things we'd like to do, what do you? What's the message you tell people about what they can do in their local communities to start making change? The first thing we have to do is get school boards to think of themselves as leaders of communities. Rather than managers of schools, they have to see themselves as the people whose job it is to help the community understand what's going on. That means they themselves have to come to some consensus about where they want the schools to go and what kind of schools they want and what, what is a just school and a fair school as well as a technically proficient school. And how, do we, how are we going to know when the schools are moving in the right direction? And, and they have to come to that understanding themselves. The, and then they had to begin to argue back with the policymakers and say, not, not, not trying to escape accountability, but say, here's a form of accountability we can believe in. I, see, I, I don't think anyone would object, or at least I don't, to the idea that schools ought to be accountable for ensuring that kids meet learning standards. But the learning standards need to be derived from curriculum standards. And we need to have powerful curriculum standards. And we know darn well that every child isn't going to meet those, the standards that you'd set up if you really had powerful standards because they're going to be moving toward them. And so some people are going to be in one place and some are going to be another. But the school ought to be in a position to say, and when they reach this point, we're prepared to say that we'll turn them loose from us. We, don't, we expect them to continue to be lifelong learners. I mean, most of the stuff I now know, I learned after I graduated from college. I think about history. I, I think I have a pretty good grasp of history. And I majored in history as an undergraduate. But I swear I didn't know the history I now know when I graduated from college because I, didn't, I hadn't had a chance to use it yet. And when I started teaching history, I began to learn history in a very different way. Well, we need to have kids who learn this stuff over time. I mean, most people, when they really stop and think about it, say, you know, what I really learned in school was how to learn this stuff. Not, I didn't learn the stuff, but I learned that learning this stuff is important, and I learned enough about it to know how to distinguish sense from nonsense, and how to know whether I was on the right track or not. And so I've, I've got those kind of skills that it takes. But we have to learn how to do that. And that is a very different conception of, teach, or of learning. Well, community leaders need to be that crystal clear about where they want to go. And then they need to talk with the legislature and say, look, there's some things you're asking us to do that if we do them. Well, I'll give you an example. I live in Kentucky. And well-meaning legislators in 1990 passed the Kentucky Education Reform Act. 
And they said they had two policy statements, I remember. One of them was that we were going to reduce class size. And the other one was that we wanted to have uh, some degree of stability in the classroom. And so the way we reduce class size, you set a time certain. And if you don't, I'll just use a number, 20 kids in the, in the elementary uh, kindergarten or first grade classroom. I don't know what the number was. But the interesting thing is children aren't born in, in lumps of 20. So sometimes you got 16 and sometimes you got 22. Well, the idea was that by September, let's say September the 20th, if you don't have 20 kids in the class or you got 22 kids in the class, you got to decompose it and break it into two classes. Well, now what you got is a group of little elementary kids who are just getting to know their teacher. And because of some bureaucratic rule that was well-intended, they now have to give up the stability in order to meet the rule. Well, there ought to be some way to say, here's the standard. This is what we're shooting for. But we need to understand that sometimes under the, the, the real standard is the benefit of the child. And when you make a decision, you always need to, and you vary from the standard, you need to justify that variance in terms of, of the benefit of children. Because children is what this is about. And the growth of children is what this is about. So we need to have boards of education that understand that about themselves, understand that about the community, and can talk with the community about it. So when the, commu when the community comes in and says, well, I'll, I'll give you, they talk about test scores. And they say, we got, our test scores are too low. Well, I can tell them why the test scores are too low. Too many kids are marking the wrong answers. I mean, all you have to do to get more kids to mark the right answers, and there are schools in this country where that's what they've taken on themselves, and some of them are getting caught. It's called cheating. And, and we've got school districts that have developed great reputations of really turning schools around. And when they dig underneath it, they find out that sometimes that turnaround has to do with a turning around from the lead on the end of the pencil to the eraser on the other end. And, and I'm not being ugly when I say that. I'm simply saying that what happens if you put pressure on people to do things that are impossible to do and don't give them the tools to do it, and you tell them your survival depends on it, human nature is to try to protect yourself. Well, we need to have boards of education understand that and can talk to the legislature about that because the legislat legislators in the last 20 years have taken it on themselves to act like super school boards. And, and, and that shouldn't be the function of the legislature. The courts ought to make sure that the school systems are behaving in constitutional ways. For example, segregation was declared unconstitutional because it affected the rights of human beings. That's a very different thing than when the legislature says, you will have merit pay in order to get our money. That's a decision that will be made by the local community. And when you start usurping that kind of thing, or you will have, you will start school before January 1st, or before uh, Labor Day, or after Labor Day, or whatever, you're now, you're now usurping the right of the community. Because communities need to have the right to make decisions about those fundamental things that make up the education of their children. So we're going to move to Q&A. But before we do so, I, I want to talk about one final thing. If, you're, if you have a question for Phil, please uh, think about it and be, and be getting ready. And you can also put it in the chat again if we've missed it in the chat. I'm sure that some questions have gone by. Uh, and, and I'm going to ask once for a final question, then we'll move to Q&A. So I had a little bit of an epiphany at the end of the book. Um, I was involved in a work project uh, at the company I work for where uh, there was a reluctance to use social media for communicating with customers. And um, this is something I think that's happening in a lot of companies, which they don't quite know what to do with blogs and, and Twitter and these kinds of things versus traditional marketing. So what we did in the company was we actually set up a volunteer committee that together kind of brainstormed how to use the technology thoughtfully. 
and then it sort of the right appropriate moment we were well prepared to um, kind of talk about that thoughtfully and actually make a huge difference to the company in one particular circumstance. As I read the book, and as particularly was reading the ending, you talk about uh, volunteer committees and book groups, and I thought if, if I live in a community and my school board doesn't understand this, is maybe one of the solutions for me to actually start a volunteer group thinking thoughtfully about education locally, not you know, as a negative or radical thing, but actually gathering people together and having deep discussions about education and what can be done in a local community. Come at me and pat one more time. <laughs> I'm not going to tell the whole thing because it's <laughs> not, not the whole thing. I got, I got part. So what, what's the, what's the key question you want me to Well, answer? so I heard you talking about uh, asking uh, local leaders and school boards to gather together volunteer committees and to look for people who are actively interested and engaged. Let's say I live in a community where the school board and the local leaders aren't doing that. I, I took away from the book, I could actually do that without their permission. I mean, I could start gathering people together, read some books on education, and, and then I could actually be in a position to start influencing the conversation even if my school leaders aren't doing that. You could. In fact, one of the things, you know, several years ago we had a, uh, some authors from a book entitled Applebee's America. And one of the things they talked about was how the megachurches use study groups to satisfy the need for belonging and being, being a part of something bigger than yourself. And I, I thought about that a lot with, with uh, schools. There's no reason that citizens couldn't get together and read books about education and think about them. Now, they're not always going to come up with the answers I'd want them to come up with, but they're going to be addressing the right issues. In fact, it seemed to me that the school ought to be putting out questions that the community ought to be talking about, not necessarily the answers that they need, but here's some questions. For example, what do you know about uh, the quality of education in this community 50 years ago? Because one of the things I find out is a lot of people overestimate what the schools were like in the good old days. And they have this belief that everybody was graduating from high school and everybody was getting straight A's and everybody went away to college. And that's basically the college educated people believe that because they didn't know any of the other folks. Well, how do we, how do we get people to talk about the right issues and then say, now what does that mean for us today? What, what, what do you know about what's going on in school? Have you been in the schoolhouse recently? Uh, have you talked with kids recently? And have you listened to what, what they're saying and, and help them learn how to learn from, from the, each other? Uh, that, that seems to me to be something that could be done. And the schools could facilitate it, but if the schools don't want to facilitate it, uh, ministers can facilitate it, uh, mayors can facilitate it, uh, other community leaders and civic leaders could facilitate it, so it could be done. Okay, well, I took up more time on that question than I meant to. So we have uh, time for Q&A now. So if you have a question for Phil that you've put in the chat and I have missed it, please uh, post it again. Or feel free to raise your hand using the hand with the green up arrow at the bottom of the participant window to raise your hand and ask a question. So if you have a question for Phil, please post it in the chat or uh, feel free to raise your hand. Um, I wanted to, while we're waiting for a question, um, I was uh, appreciative of the perspective on families, um, but I often feel like families get left out of the equation. Um, do, or do you have sort of concrete ways you feel in which 
uh, you know, families or communities can be supportive of families participating in the educational process decision making? Well, I'm not sure it's so much in decision making as it is in shaping the way decisions are made. And that, that sounds like double talk, but let me, let me explain what I mean by that. That I think asking people to make decisions that they don't have the, the, the wherewithal and the knowledge to make is, is ill-advised. On the other hand, I think sometimes parents know a whole bunch of stuff that school people need to know before they make decisions, and school people haven't learned how to ask those questions. And so we don't, a parents, even what we might call bad parents, often know more about their kids than the best of teachers can know about them because they, they're with them longer. So if we can begin to talk with parents and listen to parents, in a meaningful way, and I don't mean by that having a PTA open house. I mean having serious conversation. Let me give you an example. One of the things we encourage people to do in some of our training programs is we call it the 10 questions exercise. So talk to a teacher. Say to the teachers in your school in the fall or any time of the year, I guess, but fall would be best for me. Say, get, send a note home to your parents and say, list 10 things you would like your son or daughter, the student, to voluntarily say to you about what's going on in their classroom but, but between now and Christmas. And let's take that and the faculty look at that stuff and say, what does this mean about what parents are expecting? We tend to call parents in and tell them what they're expecting or what they ought to expect. We don't call them up and ask them. We don't call up very often and ask the question, how's your kid doing in our school? And is there anything we can do to make them more successful? We call them up, if we, if we do call them up, is to tell them how their child is doing in school and tell them what they can do to make your child more successful. Now, you're going to have some parents who will say, well, hell, if you don't know, how do you expect me to? Uh, but you're going to have other parents uh, who say, you know, nobody's ever asked me that question before, and I'm going to think about that. Well, it's that kind of learning how to hear that we have to have in the schools and in the communities. So, Leonard, uh uh, in the chat makes a response to, to this particular issue and he says, um, you raise a difficult question, I don't have an immediate answer. I think he's talking about the, uh, the involvement of uh, parents. If there were a direct link to decision making, then I fear the meetings would be taken over by the likes of the Tea Party activists who already know what they want even if they don't know anything else. I heard in the book from you a support for uh, the importance of uh, kind of democratic principles and being willing to address things in a harder way through um, allowing for that kind of dialogue than, than pushing it away. How do you respond to that question about um, that there will be people whose opinions you don't agree with who will have an influence in the, in the local community for education? They will have an influence. But, you know, I think of the difference between democracy and mobocracy. And, and we really have to ask ourselves, how do we get, how do we get people heard? And how do we, I mean, part, part of, you know, I don't know much about the Tea Party. I'm, I don't associate with people who are in the Tea Party, so I don't know. I've got one good friend that probably is, uh, and we have mighty fights. Uh, but, but we can respect each other because he believes that I believe in good things, and I believe that he believes in good things. We just have to think each other wrong. Well, that's, that's what democracy is about. But we have to learn how to carry on a democratic dialogue, a democratic conversation, and that's hard work. Democracy is not easy, and, and you, have to, you, you can't let people 
interest groups and factions. In Madison's Federal Paper Number 10, he talks about how you protect yourself against factions and groups ruining democracy, because factions and groups will destroy democracy if they run amok. And so we have to have ways to control the act. And by control, I don't mean suppress. Uh, I mean, how do we make sure that the dialogue is productive and moving forward as opposed to one group dominating another? Because what will happen is we'll wind up with those people, for example, who have great organizational skill. You can dominate the school board because we have low turnout elections. If you really want to, you really want to dominate the school board, just get really. If you get really organized, you can elect a school board member because you only have to have maybe eight to ten percent of the voters to, to turn the election around. Well, that's that's a simple election to get in. When you start talking broadening the base, then it makes it more difficult for factions and groups to to control things. But that means civic work on the part of everybody, and understanding that you got you got to trust democracy. You know, I think it was Winston Churchill said democracy is the worst form of government that mankind has ever created, except all the others. And I think that's something we need to understand. We either believe in democracy or we don't. And if we believe in it, we have to trust. But somehow or another, in the long run, if you continue to argue, that the wisdom will win out. It may wind up in the short run looking stupid. But if you keep working at it in the long run, and I've seen this in school board elections. I've seen, I've seen factions get a hold of a school board. And they do major harm for a few years. And sometimes a lot of good people get hurt. But eventually, the good folks finally get fed up and they say, that we've had it. And they turn that around. Now, the danger of that is when you start looking at some of these misbehaving school boards, you say, well, we've got to stop that. And so what we're going to do is take power away from the school boards and turn it over to the, to, to the state office. Well, who says those experts and bureaucrats are going to be any smarter than the person who's in leading the, the Tea Party? You know, I, I'm not prepared to say that. I'm not, I'm not prepared to put my hands in some of the people who are in some of those think tanks uh, who, who are also uh, ideologically someplace I'm not. I would rather I'd rather trust myself to be able to argue with all with the most unreasonable, and there are unreasonable people, but there's also unreasonable educated people. So I'm not I'm not prepared to say, uh, well we're not going to have we're not we're not going to have this group or that group involved in the in the conversation. It's got to be a great community conversation. So Phil, you're working at the local level uh, with lots of. Uh, educational institutions, and I'm assuming you're having uh, different experiences. Are there particular circumstances where you look at a situation and say, this is likely to succeed because the following uh, beliefs or uh, kinds of people are in place? And, and what do those end up being? First, you've got to have strong moral leadership. You've got to have a superintendent who really wants to drive the system forward. And by that, I don't mean beat up on people, but understands that you've got, to, you've got to lead rather than manage. You've got to have a board of education that's willing to come together in conversation and first build among themselves a sense of community. Before you can lead a community, the school board has to be a community. And they have to see their, they have to see their role very differently. Rather than being representatives of groups and constituencies, they have to become leaders of the community and community builders. And that's a very different role for most boards of education. They see themselves more as kind of like legislators and like town councils. They're not. They're like boards. And a board does a, has a very different function than a legislative group. And so help, when I find a board of education that says, what I really am about here is helping this community build great schools 
and they don't say it in those necessarily in those words, but you got to get that kind of you got to have local newspapers who are prepared to provide you with people who are educated about education. I mean, one of the biggest problems we have in this country, I think, is particularly in local newspapers, the the, the education beat is a low status beat. And just about the time you get a newspaper reporter understanding enough to be able to write intelligently about education, they're moved to some other beat, and we got another new one to educate. And they come in with the same lack lack of understanding of what's going on. Well, how do we how do we get the newspaper to buy into that sort of stuff? How do we get how do we get uh, the the entire community, and and the, particularly the people that uh, in the book uh, uh, Half America they talk about navigators. The navigators being the people to whom other people listen, the E.F. Hutton people, if you will. How do we get those people to know enough to begin to argue among themselves and to argue with other people? Because in the long run, democracy is a big and ongoing grand argument in the best sense of the word. And you're always moving toward utopia. You're not there. Okay, we've got about two minutes left. I want to make sure that if there's a question I've missed that you're able to ask it. You're certainly welcome to raise your hand and ask a question directly using the microphone or to place it in the chat. The book is Leading for Learning, How to Transform Schools into Learning Organizations. I loved it. I loved it enough that I actually ordered today uh, Inventing Better Schools. Uh, and I'm going to be hard pressed not to order uh, Working on the Work when the new edition comes out. Um, I'm not seeing any final questions. The book available on Kindle. I think yes. I know that uh, Inventing Better Schools is available on Kindle because I chose not to get the Kindle and to uh, to order the actual paper book so I could make notes in it. Phil, I think we're done. Uh, as as usual, an hour was not, okay. not even nearly enough time. Uh, really appreciate your coming on. Love the book. I'm hoping that there's a chance to stay in contact with you, and maybe when uh, WOW comes out, we can um, kind of do a follow up. Uh, just delightful to to find so many of the themes in your book so relevant to the discussions we've been having here. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks for learning the technology. Getting your thank Jennifer for getting you all set up and uh, in Illuminate. We sure appreciate it. Uh, thanks to those of you who have attended tonight. Again, thanks to Learn Central, Illuminate, uh, and Microsoft Redo for a sponsorship of the series. And do join us for one of our upcoming shows. Phil, have a great evening. I know it's late for you, so we're going to let you go. Really appreciate you being here. Thank you very, very much. Okay, that was terrific. Um, I'm going to go ahead and turn Phil's microphone off so he doesn't feel like he has to stick around. You can turn it back on if you'd like to, but otherwise, feel free to just close out. That was fascinating for me. Uh, I loved this book. Uh, really, really liked it, and uh, feel that uh, I'm embarrassed that I didn't know more about Phil and his work, but also really appreciative to get to know him uh, now. Um, I'm, I still feel badly. I feel like we don't, we're not doing a good job of getting your questions asked, but sure appreciate that you have been here and have participated uh, and hope that you'll tune in again or listen to the recordings. Okay, so I think we'll close out. I'm going to turn the recording off.